This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. A federal election may have been averted, but that doesn't mean Trudeau doesn't still have a closet full of skeletons that the conservatives are hell-bent on exposing. If it seems like your grocery bills have been ballooning lately, you're not imagining things. The price of food really is high right now. They say it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. We hear from a reporter in Iowa about a guy whose desperate attempt to keep his name out of their local news backfired spectacularly. And a nine-foot-tall mechanical behemoth rolls ominously through sleepy American neighborhoods, spitting out candy. All of this starts now. Ernie Eves, a former premier and finance minister in Ontario. How you doing, Ernie? I'm great. How are you, John? Likewise fine. Dan Moulton with us as well, VP Government Relations at Crestview Strategy, liberal strategist and media commentator. How about you, Dan? Oh, I'm great. Edge of my seat in Ottawa today. You did what with your seat in Ottawa? We were all on the edge of our seats today, weren't we? Oh, oh yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> what it was. <laughs> Must have been a very thin seat to have uh, made, a, made you sit on the edge of it. But listen, let me ask you, Mr. Eves, first of all. I mean, this is a case where, uh, you know, they say when there's a whiff of scandal, sometimes, you know, it's the cover-up that buries you. Or if it's allowed to fester, the gas plant thing here in Ontario seemed to be one such. Uh, didn't kneecap Kathleen Wynne or Dalton McGinney, I guess, at the time, but it came back to haunt them. Uh, how did you perceive this thing? I mean, as it's come to a head, as we're sifting through the tea leaves now, I uh, want to get your interpretation, the takeaway, though, that how you assess this, because I had you know, the former Liberal MPP, Arthur Potts, last hour saying, the big nothing burger. Uh, there's not a dog that's going to hunt there. Uh, or do you see something bigger at play here? Well, I mean, they're certainly entitled to his opinion. Maybe he's used to liberal standards of ethics. I don't know, but all I'm saying is, all I'm, my point would be, if there's nothing to hide on behalf of the government, why don't, why didn't they just comply with previous requests for this information? Why did they, on redacting about 50% or more of the information that was in the correspondence that they did agree to give, and they could have avoided this whole thing in the first place? Um, the government prorogued Parliament. They've done double backflips to try and get out of dealing with this wee controversy issue. Now there are other issues with respect to COVID uh, cropping up. And the opposition uh, introduced a motion. I wouldn't have worded it the way they did. I think the initial name proposed for the committee was ridiculous, but that's just my opinion. Um, I think that it's the opposition has every right on opposition day to move a motion to create a new committee in parliament. And for my advice to the prime minister would be when there's a minority parliament, you don't get to decide, sir, whether there's a committee or not. The elected members in the minority par- parliament from different parties, they get to decide. I know you're used to having everything your way used to having a majority government, but you don't. Uh, well, now, you'd be right, Ernie, but, but, but the fact is the NDP today voted against that motion. So a majority oh, yeah, of the uh, parliamentarians yeah, didn't those, support those, that Those motion, principled NDP guys who <laughs> slag the prime minister and the liberals for doing what they're doing, but then turn around and vote for him because they don't want to go to the polls. And I don't think there should be an election, quite frankly. I, I think that's ridiculous. But 
the political rea- you know reality is that the NDPs in the Nanos poll out today or yesterday are now down to about thirteen and a half percent, and know they get absolutely clobbered in elections, so they're going to do double backflips to avoid an election at all costs or even the possibility of one. So I think there's a lot of political gamesmanship here on all sides that has been played. But I really, it really does make you start to wonder what the government is trying to hide if they just don't come up with the information. Well, that was the takeaway. Uh, as a matter of fact, Pierre Polyev, who's the Conservative uh, Party's finance critic, alluded to that. He says uh, the truth's got to be pretty ugly for the prime minister to go to such lengths to keep it concealed. Give a listen. There must be one hell of an awful secret he's hiding here for him to go to these lengths. Shutting down Parliament, and then when it comes back, having his MPs give 20 hours of speeches to paralyze three different parliamentary committees, and then, at the climax, threatening to bring down his own government in order to stop Parliament from looking in to this scandal, which saw his family get a half million dollars from a group that he helped give a half billion dollars to. Um, So all I can think is that there's some really awful facts that he knows are going to come out. And that's why he's so desperate to cover it all up. So, Dan, you're the liberal strategist. I mean, uh, Ernie was kind of curious about that as a strategy, too. Uh, Why play your hand that way? It seems to draw suspicion at the very least. And even Canadians who may not pay attention to this stuff because it's all inside baseball suddenly prick up their ears and go, yeah, what's going on here? Why are you doing all of this? Uh, What do you how do you make uh, do you think that's a winning strategy? Well, I think taking a step back from the intensity of the political theater that played out in Ottawa today, and I I don't think it would come as a surprise to any of us, all this is political games, as Ernie called them, and and a lot of of theater. The worst outcome for the Liberals would have been to see this committee uh, created, because not that it would come to some sort of great conclusion or do some sort of good work, that it would spend the next year or two years or however long this minority parliament does, creating more political theater, creating more problems for the government, distracting them from their ability to deliver their message, which is the obvious goal of the opposition through creating this committee. I was involved in several, uh, or a minority parliament uh, here in uh, Ontario, and we had, as you mentioned earlier, the, the gas plants committee. I was very involved in that, and, and, and it was a huge distraction from, uh, from, for the government and, and, and really didn't go anywhere except to create another vehicle for the opposition to try and extract political points from uh, the government of the day. And so in terms of strategy, in terms of political strategy, I think the government uh, did a pretty good job today in that the worst outcome for them would have been the creation of this committee, and that was avoided. So in other words, getting to the truth really has no merit uh, because it might disrupt the government from proceeding well, with this their committee own. wouldn't have gotten to any truth. Uh, this committee would have uh, been a constant uh, three-ring circus for the government to have uh, had to deal with on a daily basis, which is really not to anyone's advantage. And so if you want to think of this in minority parliament from purely the perspective of what's good strategy for the government in terms of being able to deliver their message on, on a daily basis uh, moving forward, having this committee would not have been to their advantage. And so certainly they were uh, working very hard to, uh, to stop its creation. And, and part of that was to say, okay, this sounds like a motion of confidence. It sounds like you're saying we're corrupt. If that's the case, we don't clearly have the confidence of the House of Commons any longer. So we'll have an election. Well, obviously, it's not a motion of non-confidence. I mean, that's a real. You know, real, you know, just as never as anyone else. A motion to form a, a committee in either Ontario or Canada has never, and I repeat, never 
been a, vote, a motion of non-confidence. It's absolutely ridiculous. When you have to stretch that far to get a logic as to why you're doing what you're doing, you're really screwed up. Or you're just well, afraid, Ernie, or you're you just know, afraid of the do, people finding out what the information really is. I, I, you know as well as I do that the prime minister or premier can declare any vote that happens in the chamber a vote of confidence. So, so if you wear pink bow ties, that could be a motion in could it? Well, if, if it was if a the vote, prime minister uh, decided to so make it, that's that BS, Dan. And no rational person would think that a motion to form a committee is a motion of non-confidence, unless they really died and don't want to deal with it, or they're looking for the weakest excuse possible to try to blame somebody else for calling an election. Well, and Dan's intimating that this was a successful strategy to deflect and uh, move forward now. But I'm just saying, Ernie, again, I get back to my original question of whether or not this will continue to redound or resonate. Uh, will there be a matter of public perception that there's something bigger in play here and they're hiding something? I just wonder if this is like the gas plant scandal. Didn't go away anytime soon. Yes, it was distracting to Dan and the Liberals at the time in Ontario, but ultimately uh, it was one of the things that uh, it it bogged them down. And uh, like an anvil when you're trying to swim, ultimately it sinks you. Uh, oh, it's you terrible think- when you're elected to government and you have to actually be responsible to the people. What a terrible thing. I mean, what kind of a system do we have here? I mean, it, it, you ha- you are responsible to the public. And when you screw up and you make mistakes... The best thing you can do, as you pointed at the beginning of the show, John, in my opinion, is to admit that you made a mistake. For whatever reason, governments of all political stripes everywhere don't seem to ever like to do that. They want to pretend that they are perfect and they never make mistakes. Just admit that you made a mistake. Give us the information. Give us the facts. And the public isn't stupid. They'll decide how important it is or it isn't. Well, and so uh, the Conservatives, in their motion, wanted to expand the context. They took away the corruption aspect of things, but it was about the misuse of money. And since money was flying out fast and furiously during the COVID-19, at the peak of it anyway, uh, there was one case where, I guess, ventilators were at a premium, and so there was a contract let to a former Liberal MP, Frank Bayless, for ventilators, something around $200 million dollars. Uh, is this the kind of stuff that bears further scrutiny, Ernie? Do you feel that uh, this is all part of the overall, I guess, uh, investigation that uh, is required? Well, that would be a proper function for the audit committee or whatever they call their such committee in Ottawa to get to the bottom of whether or not any government contract is done appropriately or not appropriately. I don't know about the, enough about the facts of this particular case. I hear allegations that you know, the contract was given to a shell company that really had no assets, and then it was transferred to a former Liberal MP. But I really don't know whether that's true or not, to be quite frank. I mean, that's the whole point of having committees and having question period and people answering questions, if they actually ever answer the question. <laughs> well, all right, Dan. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, you don't want to comment further on this. I can move on. It's just a case that... Uh, this one is not going away to my mind anytime soon and uh, whether or not the oxygen that is going to be uh, poured into it to uh, the embers here from the conservatives are going to resonate with Canadians and uh, for a sustainable period where it might have an impact. Well, we're, we're uh, certainly going to see more drama around confidence votes, right? I think that there's no question about that. We're in a minority parliament. We dealt with 
uh, several of them under the Harper years in which the drama on a regular basis of whether or not they were going to have the conference and whether or not we were going to have an election uh, will be routine. The government will deliver an economic statement next month that will lead to the same questions, right? Uh, This is going to be a regular part of the next uh, year or however long this parliament runs. But really, in a majority situation, the government relies on its power being in the fact that it has a majority of the seats in the House. In a minority, the government relies on its popularity with the people right now. And, and, and as you pointed out earlier, the New Democrats are polling exceptionally poorly right now. And so the Liberals have a lot of comfort and confidence, I think, in how they're proceeding uh, right now in this minority situation in the same way that Harper did in, in before the 2011 election. Well, are, are you saying that they're playing the NDP like a fiddle? Some say Jagmeet Singh is also extracting certain concessions for his vote, or at least his support. Uh, he may exploit well, he this to the extent. He didn't seem to today. I mean, he, yeah, I, I will say, you know, having, as I mentioned earlier, I worked in a couple, or in a minority government here in Ontario, and I will say Andrea Horvath was always uh, very successful as a, a, an opposition leader with the third party and the balance of power in extracting concessions very publicly and, and, and having those moments in the spotlight and, and using it to her advantage politically. Uh, Jagmeet Singh doesn't seem to be as successful at that. And really, it's about leverage. He didn't have any today. He doesn't want an election. He, of any of the party leaders, uh, he would be, have the stand the most to lose in an election. And so uh, I think he, he was squeezed today and, and he voted with the government. And there's a reason for that. Yeah. As Tom Mulcair said today, I think, uh, Mr. Singh keeps on finding himself backed into a corner instead of coming out and getting out in front of what other parties' positions are. He always seems to wait to find out what everybody else's position is, and then he's sort of damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. When it comes to the food industry, it's really taken a hit. The restaurant business we know full, uh, full well. Otherwise, no, the food uh, people like uh, grocery stores have had uh, a banner time of things, but... Uh, as far as the consumer is concerned, those days may be pressed, uh, given that the price of food is set to go up. So says Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, and he would know. He's a professor of food policy and distribution at Dalhousie University, and he's joined the Oakley Show this afternoon. Sylvain, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Good afternoon. Well, thank you for having me, John. So, uh, from what I understand, uh, food prices might be headed up. Uh, is that right, and uh, why would that be? Well, it's quite normal to see prices go up. The problem is that everything else is remaining the same. <laughs> so the the three four percent you see at the grocery store, uh, when when the inflation rate is basically at zero or at 0.5 percent, that's what we saw today coming out of Stats Can. That three four percent looks more like a ten or twelve percent. It's been going on for a while. In fact, uh, over the last decade or so, uh, the food inflation rate has outpaced the general inflation rate by about 23-25% across the country. And so this is not a new phenomena, uh, but the pace has increased uh, since the beginning of COVID. So is it all COVID-related? No, not necessarily. I mean, this... So, of course, COVID hasn't helped. I mean, it, it is costing more to do basically everything right now from cleaning grocery stores, operating grocery stores, to, to uh, run a processing plant, uh, even in farming. Farming has been affected by, by COVID. Um, but there's also this issue of e-commerce. Uh, a lot of companies are investing more in e-commerce. Uh, everyone has access to, to the consumer because everyone, a lot of people are buying now online. We're expecting the, the amount of sales 
uh, online to triple this year for for food. So which is which is a lot. I mean, we could actually reach eight to ten billion dollars worth of of sales for for food this year, which means essentially that the K market is overstored right now, especially in downtowns. And so we're going to see a lot of changes as a result of extra costs. But in the meantime. Uh, we're going to be expected to pay a little bit more, and, and there's there's more changes along coming along. Well, tell us about some of these changes that you're uh, foreseeing here uh, because of e-commerce and everything. Because I'm kind of curious, uh, do the laws of supply and demand still apply, and uh, how will that impact <laughs> costs and distribution and so on and so forth? Spell that out for us, Sylvain. Yeah, I always I always chuckle when I hear it's it's all about supply and demand. Actually, not really, not in food. Because you see, when you walk into a grocery store, you you on average you'll see thirty nine thousand different food products, and so and every category has its own dynamic. So, for example, uh, you go to the meat counter, you have chicken, beef, and pork, the trifecta of meat. Um, those meat products will compete against each other. Very rarely you'll see one piece of meat or all three kinds being on sale the same week. And so every category will have its own dynamic and has little to do with supplies. Of course, supply, if there's lack of supply, of course, uh, sometimes it will trigger higher food prices, and that's kind of what happened with beef. But typically every category will have a different dynamic overall. But um, when it comes to to prices specifically, one of the reasons why prices are moving upwards, especially because of COVID, um, there are less, there are fewer rebates. There, there's not a whole lot of discounting going on. Uh, one strategy that we we were seeing uh, a lot before COVID was the loss leader uh, strategy. So you basically have a can of soup waiting for you in the middle of the store, sold at 99 cents. Of course, that's that's below cost. They'll get you to buy that can of soup, but beside it, you'll have a uh, I don't know a can of sauce, which is triple the price, and you'll buy that instead. So they'll use lost leaders as a bait for you to get in there. There's not a whole lot of that going on anymore, which has actually increased the price of food. Why is it not going on? I mean, uh, or do they think they've got a captive audience? Uh, they can, you know, just dictate uh, whatever. The market is not that competitive, or they don't. Why do they not need to do that? I think that people uh, were shell shocked. I mean, COVID came in violently into our lives, and uh, we were affected by the empty shelves. And food security means something different for a lot of people now, and grocers know that. So uh, a lot of people are just happy to see food on shelves really and so they they will still uh, look at prices but they'll compare prices so if they see a couple of uh, uh, couple of uh, different kinds of strawberries different kinds of apples they'll compare prices that's about it they won't necessarily ask themselves is that a good deal or not weekly fires are, are getting thinner as well so you see john i actually think and based on what we've seen the last decade we are slowly leaving an era of cheap food in Canada. And, and this is the reality we're going to have to accept. So instead of spending, I don't know, 9.1, 9.2% of your budget on food, uh, you may be looking at a 10, 11, 12% in a couple of years from now. So basically dedicating way more on food than before. 
Again, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of Food Policy and Distribution at Dalhousie University. You're also predicting that grocers are going to shutter between three to 400 stores in the next year and bolster their online grocery store offerings. Uh, why is that? Just cut out the overhead? Uh, well, first of all, that's where the market is going. Uh, before COVID, uh, barely anyone wanted a stranger to pick apples or tomatoes for them. and now with covid everything changed because now it was about safety and keeping safe staying at home and a lot of people are self-isolating and and they don't want to leave so and they find it convenient but there's a catch Uh, you pay for that convenience uh five to seven percent on average so if you actually are to order I don't know, 50 items online through uh, Instacart, Voila, or whatever services you're dealing with, uh, you are expected to pay 5 to 7% more for your groceries compared to if you would walk in to a grocery store yourself. So, And grocers are starting to realize that they can actually make money selling food online, so they're going to get better at it. Huh. So you're paying a premium for the convenience. Something oh, else you say. Absolutely. And on top of the fact that there are little or no discounts online, you do pay a delivery fee. I'm wondering, too, about labor costs built into this. Now, we know uh, there was that COVID premium uh, early on. It's since been rescinded by uh, certainly the Weston family withdrew that. Uh, but $2 extra per hour for the people who are stocking the shelves and so on and so forth. That's but right. How about working in food processing as well? Uh, again, the labor market, from what I understand, is pretty volatile. And right now, uh, you're having to pay workers a little more because you're having trouble recruiting them. Is that right? That's right. Uh, so if, if you ask me right now, John, if I'm concerned about food shortages or food supplies, I, I'm not. Uh, however, there is one thing that... that is keeping me up at night is the fact that there are 28,000 vacancies in food manufacturing right now in this country, and the majority of them are in the province of Ontario. And the reason why we have so many vacancies, well, there are two reasons. One, we food, food manufacturing really got bad press in the spring. A lot of there were uh, plant closures. People got sick. And I think it spooked a lot of people. And secondly, um, we do have uh, public programs enticing people to stay home. And so why bother to go out and, and risk your own health? And so that's, that's a bit of a problem right now. There was a, there was a labor shortage affecting the industry before COVID. It just, it just got worse. And, and, and do remember that these positions are often not in downtowns there. Uh, in suburbia, uh, like in, for example, in Ontario, a lot of these jobs are in the Cambridge area, Kitchener-Waterloo. So if you if you live in Mississauga or Toronto, you kind of have to commute. So it's not necessarily convenient. But these jobs are well-paying jobs, by the way. The, uh, you can start uh, with a $24, $25 an hour salary. It's not bad. It's just been very difficult to attract some talent. Wow. Uh, And as you say, because of some of the social programs, the CERB comes to mind readily uh, rather than 
risk your health and whatever, uh, stay at home and collect the 500 a week. But at 24 an hour, it might just uh, entice some people to get out there and get involved in uh, the food services or processing business. Sylvan, it's always fascinating to talk to you. Uh, this is something, uh, a much-needed commodity, obviously, food, and therefore uh, we want to keep our finger on the pulse as to where it's headed, and uh, you're a go-to guy in that regard. I know you're coming out with a report again in December, are you not? That's correct. Uh, uh, one report in, in November on e-commerce and the evolution of e-commerce and food, and in December it's Canada's Food Price Report, 11th edition with Guelph, Saskatchewan and UBC in Vancouver. Let's talk on those occasions. I'll look forward to it. All right. Take care. You got it. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of Food Policy and Distribution at Dalhousie University. Wild story out of Iowa. We're a businessman there. Uh, He was actually, hey, it's the high election season stateside as well, stealing Joe Biden signs or taking one from someone's yard. And the whole thing started to unravel on him in an interesting way. Joining me on the line right now is Seth Boyce. He's a staff writer with the Dickinson County News in Iowa, and he's the guy who broke this story. Seth, how are you doing this afternoon? Hey there, John. Can we talk for a few moments here, just you and me, and uh, find out what the hell went on with this guy named uh, Pete DeYeager? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so uh, you're the guy who broke the story. Set it up for us. Uh, Pete DeYeager's dubious behavior. What happened there in Dickinson County? Well, uh, I guess the starting point would be uh, back in, I would say, August, someone uh, contacted my editor and said, hey, I noticed that uh, Peter DeYeager got uh, charged with misdemeanor theft. And I'm usually the guy who takes care of the police reports here in the newsroom, and uh, that one hadn't come up on my radar, so I looked into it. And, yeah, indeed, he had taken a political sign from a uh, a yard out here on one of the neighborhoods called Monarch Cove. Um, and so we we kind of knew who he was. He's a prominent businessman over in a, a county, a couple counties away in Sioux County. We're in Dickinson County here in Spirit Lake, Iowa. Mm. And... Uh, so my editor knew who he was, and we said, we'll, we'll treat this like we would any other misdemeanor crime, and we'll put it on page three. He got three sentences on page three. He wasn't even the first name there. Um, but then, uh, <laughs> then come the next edition, our September 2nd edition, uh, the delivery driver uh, comes to our front and drops off a package and says that he needs to get a paper because he can't find any anywhere along his route that day. Uh, well, I should back up. That was actually the next day. So we delivered the September 2nd edition, and then uh, September 3rd was when they started disappearing. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I was the one who kind of started thinking, well, who would take our papers? And I re- remembered that that was the day Peter Dieger was in, and I thought, that that couldn't possibly be him. But <laughs> the delivery <laughs> so wait a minute. Driver, you, you sniffed this out that this guy, uh, all right, continue on with the story, though. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, the delivery guy, uh, he told us that at least one place said that they had the thief on tape. So I made some calls. I called the local PDs and saw if they had any complaints from uh, thefts from some of our uh, drop locations about town. Uh, here in Dickinson County, uh, there's there's quite a few uh, cities that are all around the local chains of lakes. There's Spirit Lake, where our office is. Uh, there's Okaboji, There's Milford. There's Arnold's Park. Called around to those, and none of them had any reports, so I started calling uh, the stores where we drop off our papers for sale. And finally found where it was, and they let me take a look at the footage, and I brought along a, a photo of Mr. Dieger on my phone and said, does does this look like the guy? And she said, well, he was wearing a mask, of course, but yeah, that sure looks like him. 
<laughs> so what what he tried to do, if I've got it right, is steal all of the papers for distribution at the drop-off points so nobody would pick one up and read his name on page three in very small type for this misdemeanor where he had been uh, found guilty of stealing a Joe Biden sign off a of front lawn. Uh, he'd been charged at that point. I, I don't oh. recall the timeline it, quite if he'd been found guilty, but... Uh, yeah, and, and I don't want to necessarily speak to motive, but that seemed that the two incidents seemed to be connected. Sure. <laughs> well, did he fess up? Did anybody confront him directly? Uh, yes, actually, one of the store owners down in uh, Okaboji, uh, they knew uh, who he was when they looked at their security tape. They said he was a regular, and uh, instead of going to the police right off, they just waited for the next time he came in, and they confronted him about it. Um, and after that, he actually went around and he started paying back some of the locations uh, that he'd taken papers from. Uh, one of the stores up here in Spirit Lake also pressed charges, and that was the one that uh, he actually got found guilty of, the Jiffy Station up here. I think he had to pay a fine of a little over $100 for that one. Wow. Uh, and so this is what, you know, we're always told it's always about the cover-up. It's the cover-up. I mean, from Watergate on down uh, to Pete DeYeager. It's the cover-up that gets you. It's not the original crime in this case, which was the misdemeanor theft of the Joe Biden sign-off, some guy's front lawn. By the way, just out of curiosity, Seth, how big is Dickinson County? Uh, we're about 17,000 people most of the year, but the, the thing about Dickinson County is that because of the local chain of lakes, the population actually uh, doubles, if not, if not more than that, during the summer. Uh, so there's there's quite a few uh, seasonal residents, which, um, as I understand it, Mr. Dieger also has a seasonal home here on the on the lakes. But everybody seems to know each other's business, or at least their comings and goings, so people are familiar. And this is really what did Pete Dieger in. <laughs> Even for you, a sleuth as good as you are here, uh, sort of sensed who else would want to be stealing your papers, right? I mean, no disrespect, but why else would they be purloining the, the whole package? Well, sure, you could. I suppose that would be a fair way to put it. It it just didn't make much sense because there, well, there wasn't any other high-profile person I would say uh, who who came to mind. But uh, of course, you know, then you got to go down. You got to confirm your suspicions, and uh, as it turned out, that <laughs> my suspicion was correct. Um, but yeah, yeah. That's damn fine reporting. There's a Pulitzer in there somewhere, I hope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about a Pulitzer, but yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Pete the Jaeger now is uh, internationally known, the infamy that lives on after his misdemeanor on page three. Go figure. Uh, there's sort of a cautionary tale or something in there, a moral morality play uh, playing out in Dickinson County, Iowa. Seth, really appreciate you joining us and sharing this with us. Uh, it was a lighter moment. <laughs> Thank you, John. Appreciate you taking the time. You got a Seth Boy, staff writer with the Dickinson County News in rural Iowa. Wow. Well, we know Halloween has been uh, discouraged in this particular area because it's a hot zone, but nonetheless, uh, because people are concerned, and parents primarily, that the kids you know, may be subjecting themselves to the virus and uh, you can't have contactless trick-or-treating. Or can you? You know, the folks at Reese's have come up with a rather novel way of delivering contactless candy. And joining me on the line right now is Alan Dark, the senior brand manager for Reese's, to tell us how that would play out. Alan, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Hey, John. Good afternoon. Happy uh, Halloween. Ten more days. Well, yeah, ten more days. And uh, that's the biggie, whether or not the kids will be going out and uh, enjoying the bounty that they do on an annual basis this year being different. As a consequence of it being different, uh, your company, Reese's, has come out with something rather novel. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's something pretty cool that we did um, in that, you know, we, we certainly want and hope that everyone across 
the world really that celebrates Halloween can do it safely in, in whatever way they are comfortable and whatever way is, is best for their family. And, you know, with that, we certainly encourage and, and appreciate the social distancing um, that's going on. And so one of the things that we did is we, we saw some really great uh, consumer-led opportunities where people were, were putting out all sorts of creative things like slides and uh, shoots and cannons to shoot our product out. And, and we decided we wanted to get in on the fun. And one of the things we did is we created a trick-or-treat door that is remote-controlled and completely contactless and can drive right up and deliver a Reese's King size on command. Just say trick-or-treat and you get us a, a nice a little bit of candy. Well, all right. Now let's get specific. This is a door. Uh, and it obviously door. it's a remote-controlled door. That's right. Yeah, it uh, can be controlled from like 5,000 feet away, although I don't recommend it. Um, very powerful. I think we over-engineered it quite extensively. You know, three <laughs> motors up and down and, uh, you know, nine foot tall. It, it's pretty ominous coming down the down the street. Right. Well, that, this is fascinating. So can we say it's almost likened to uh, a dispensing machine, but it's mocked up as a door and it is remote controlled. As you say, the three motors, it's nine feet high. So uh, what's the whole premise behind it, that uh, a community it would visit a community, communities actually get to uh, go into a contest or a raffle to get this Reese's door coming to uh, service sure. the kids in that community? How are you planning to, say, uh, introduce this door? So we plan on sending it around the country. Um, unfortunately, it's not going to be able to make a trip to the, to the states. We didn't want to you know, cross barriers there uh, and bring uh, anything up into Canada, just given all the, the, the guidelines that are there. But uh, we're going to we're going to send it around and um, people have a chance going to our Instagram to to uh, request that it come to their location. I'm not going to reveal where it's going next because we're still trying to, to determine who gets to be the next winner. But um, that's the idea is that it would sort of come up into a neighborhood um, you know, we would we would let people know that it's going to be there, obviously encourage uh, social distancing. We don't want to crowd around the door by any means uh, and kind of go go uh, go around and, and make people's day. All right. So if a child comes up to this door and you've got the slot where let's say it's the mail slot uh, and they say trick or treat, uh, how's this going to be activated? How do we know there's some kind of uh, control over what is dispensed and uh, apportioned accordingly? Uh, how have you figured all of this out? Well, it was, like I said, it was a little bit over-engineering. Um, you know, we've got a, a nice stack of, of candy in there. We can use the uh, Bluetooth speaker to communicate back and forth. Um, and, you know, if someone says trick-or-treat, you know, in a matter of a few seconds, another bar will come out. They can grab it um, touch-free and, you know, be on their way. Is it going to be anybody actually uh, auditing who's uh, going up there? I mean, I'm thinking, you just don't want are, are one you kid. Are an adult might, uh, <laughs> might have an interest in one? Look, uh, we are, we are uh, for all ages, so by all means. Um, I'm just saying, if you've got one kid who uh, recites this as a mantra over and over and over again, uh, he'd fill his sack real fast. No. Alan, how many uh, Reese's bars or sleeves are you going to put into this machine? Like, how many will be dispensed on a good night? Um, so, uh, probably a good caseload, which is um, a few hundred at, at a time can be filled. Obviously, we're willing to uh, restock to our heart's content and uh, wouldn't want to leave anybody um, missing out on a Reese's. 
I'm guessing this isn't just a one-off. I mean, Halloween is the most advantageous time to really uh, roll this thing out. But is it going to be an ongoing thing, visiting communities, or how are you going to work this? I mean, if the engineering is as sophisticated as it seems, you wouldn't want it to just be a one-night affair, would you? Oh, that's absolutely true. You know, this actually follows a long line of, uh, of things like this that we've done to sort of surprise and delight our fans. You know, a few years back, we did a, uh, a pretty cool one with a candy converter concept where we had people that could... We had this uh, vending machine type thing set up and you could bring your candy that was unwanted and exchange it for Reese's. And uh, you would have thought we, uh, you know, we were handing out, you know, free lottery tickets or something at that moment. I mean, it was it was uh, uh, quite a a success. And so, you know, these types of things are just in our DNA and and we want to surprise people and give them the joy that they need on on this night. So we'll be um, actively moving around and and, uh, providing joy as many places as we can go. Well, one of those places ought to be Canada sooner rather than later. Uh, I want to say you'd be welcome up here. So if uh, you can get on that assignment and get your engineers to figure out a way to cross the border in good time, uh, ultimately, we'd like to see that here as well. It sounds like a real wonderful project for the little guys. Completely agree. Would love to visit Toronto anytime. Alan, good to talk to you. Happy Halloween. Ten days early, but nonetheless, uh, the sentiment exists. Take care, John. I hope everyone stays well and has a great Halloween. Yeah, we do, too. Uh, Alan Dark, again, Senior Brand Manager for Reese's, and this idea, a mobile unit. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.